The teaching for this morning comes from Romans chapter 8, verses 12 to 17. This is God's word. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, again, good morning. Glad you're here. We're going to continue in our series this morning in the book of Romans. And um, if you've been with us or tracking uh, this year, we've been working our way through the book of Genesis and the book of Romans together and uh, in chunks. And uh, just as a reminder, the reason why I chose to do that was these two books, perhaps as much as any other, when you take them together and you begin to see how they overlap, uh, they really give you a comprehensive story of all that God is up to, who he is, uh, who we are, uh, what the problem is with you and with me and with this world and what God's done about it and what he will do about it. And as we come this morning, we're back in Romans, in, in, in Romans chapter 8, one of the perhaps most, well, famous chapters in, in the book of Romans. Um, it's a beautiful chapter. Uh, and this morning as we come to it, we, we need to back up and just remind ourselves where we've been in order to, to, to feel the force of what Paul is doing here in chapter 8. So if you think about it just for a moment, when we looked at Romans chapters 1 through 3, you can think of that as the bad news, the bad news of the gospel. It's bad news that we have got to take to heart that there is no one righteous before God. That everyone, past, present, and future, every human being has fallen short of the glory of God. That's the bad news. But then there's the good news. In Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through chapter 5, Paul unfolds this righteousness from God. And that righteousness is a person is Jesus, God's beloved Son, to do for you and for me what we could never do on our own. That's the good news. The good news isn't get your act together. The the good news is God's Son coming to suffer and to die and to open up a way back to God. And in fact, to open up a whole new way of living with one another that left to ourselves we could never find. And so, and in particular, what we've seen about this good news is that the cross of Jesus does two things. The cross of Jesus says that for the believer, you have died to sin. And what we learn from Paul is what that means is that sin is no longer your master. That sin no longer rules your life. 
And then second, we also notice that we've died to the law. And in particular, we've died to the law of God. And what he meant by that, we learned, was that the law's condemning power, the condemnation of the law, no longer rules your life. You are no longer treated as a person based on how do you measure up to God's law. The good news of the gospel says that you are now treated as Jesus if you belong to him. You are looked at and looked upon as if you were God's own beloved son or daughter. So when we come and we continue to to think through what's being said here, there is a problem that we began to face in Romans 7. That even though the, the Christian believer is set free from the power of sin, we learn that we're not yet free from the presence of sin. Which is why Paul ends up saying in Romans 7, I do what I don't want to do, I don't do what I do want to do. And Sinclair Ferguson would say the same thing, and he puts it like this. He would say that you have died to sin, but sin has not yet died in you. That's our problem. And what are we supposed to do about that? What is the answer to that problem? Well, first of all, Paul began to address it in Romans 7, and he taught us two things. First of all, he said that the source of this problem is not the law of God. He taught us that God's law is good and holy and righteous. But he also taught us that the law does not produce life in you. So when you come up against the reality of sin that remains, the indwelling remaining presence of sin, Paul has taught us already that, yes, there is a place for God's law in your life. God's law reveals to you the deep internal contradictions that still persist. And God's law reveals to you God's good and holy character. God's law reveals to us who you are meant to truly be. What does it look like to truly live? But at the very same time, even though it does all those things, Paul is insistent again and again, the law of God cannot change you. Why is that important? Because, if I might, I think our default mode in living life is, how can I fix myself? Tell me what I have to do in order to fix this problem or what's wrong with me. And Paul is essentially saying that will never work. So when we come to Romans 7 and we switch to Romans 8, there is a contrast you've got to see. In Romans chapter 7, 31 times the law is mentioned. And the Spirit of God is mentioned once. When you get to chapter 8, it's virtually flipped. The Spirit of God in the first 27 verses of chapter 8 shows up 19 times. What Paul is telling us here is that there is a profound and important contrast. If we are to deal with and address this problem, that sin has not yet died in us, what can actually put that sin to death? How is that possible? 
And so what we begin to see here is that the contrast in chapter 7 to chapter 8 is the contrast between the weakness of the law and the power of the Spirit. Or think of it like this. Something has to deal with the indwelling sin that remains in the believer's life. That's chapter 7. Chapter 8 is the answer to that problem. It is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So when we come to chapter 8, Paul is now beginning to unfold uh, some draw some conclusions from what we looked at last week in verses 1 through 11. That there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That Jesus has come to fulfill in us the righteous requirements of the law. In other words, he's come to change you from the inside out. So then, here's the question. What is life in the Spirit? What does that look like? That's what we're going to look at this morning. Because Romans chapter 8 teaches you that the life of faith is essentially life in the Spirit. And that is a truth that's true for everyone who trusts in Jesus. This is not some special... um, gift that the super elite spiritual people get. This is fundamental and basic to what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to be a person filled with the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, we're going to see three things. First, we need to see what is our new situation? What new situation does the gospel bring us into? Second, what is the task at hand in light of that situation? And then third, we need to understand and look at the spirit of adoption. All right? So first, our new situation, then the task at hand, and then the spirit of adoption. So first, let's let's just get a handle on what is our situation. You look here in verse 12. Here Paul is drawing a conclusion, implications for what he's already said. He says, so then, brothers, and we are to read there, so then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh, To live according to the flesh. He's describing our new situation. And in fact, virtually all commentators see here, Paul, uh, there's an implication here when he says, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, but we are debtors to the spirit to live according to the spirit. Now, first of all, what, what does Paul mean here by flesh? It's really important to understand, um, the, the, the word that is behind that English translation is um, used in a number of different ways, and there's an awful lot of ink spilt on what does Paul mean by this term. He does not mean the, 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 uh, the actual uh, stuff that wraps up your bones, your skin. He does, he does not mean that. What flesh means here. Uh, one way to think of it is the sinful nature. Flesh is this catch-all word for everything about us that is set against everything that God loves. The flesh is diametrically opposed to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. 
And it's the Holy Spirit that is in view here. And so when Paul begins in this passage we're looking at today, what I want you to begin to think about is, there is you, who you are, and you have this thing called the flesh. It's woven into every part of who you are. How you talk, how you think, how you act, decisions you make. Desires and longings and and, uh, perspectives and propensities that are allergic to what God loves and what he longs for for you. And at the very same time, to be a believer means that the spirit of God dwells in you and is dismantling your flesh piece by piece. And so what I want you to think about here, when Paul describes our new situation in verse 12, is that this situation, that you are no longer debtors to your flesh. That means you are no longer under obligation to serve your flesh. You are now under a different power. And so what that means is, and what Paul is saying here when he gets to verse 12, is if that situation is true, what that means is, regardless of of how we feel any given day, it would be inconsistent for us to live now according to the flesh when you've been set free from the power of sin by the Holy Spirit. That's our new situation. And a few weeks ago, I I, I stressed this, and I want to stress it again, because there is a huge difference between living under the power of sin and the remaining presence of sin. And the reason it's important to say this again is that the remaining presence of sin can often feel like you are still under the power of sin. And that is the great deception and lie that Satan wants you to believe. Is that your new situation, that you are set free from the power of sin, is in fact not true. And what Paul wants you to understand is, our new situation, you are no longer under obligation to the flesh, to the power of sin. Even the sin that remains in your life, it doesn't rule you anymore. And that's true regardless of how you feel any given day. It is a gospel fact that we have got to learn to live in light of every moment of every day. That's our new situation. And so then, if that is the case, what would it look like then to live according to the Spirit? Let's look at the task at hand in verses 13 to 14. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, let's pause here, and, and, or not pause, but slow down for a minute. There is something very counterintuitive that Paul just said. What he just said is that there is a kind of life that leads to death. Notice he says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And then he says that there is, in fact, a kind of death that leads to life. If by the Spirit 
you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is the counterintuitive character of the life of faith. That if you want to truly live, you have to die. If you go on living as you always have, you, you, you will die. And in fact, Paul isn't making this up. Paul is actually reflecting and teasing out what Jesus said in Mark chapter 8. When he said, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Now, what Paul is saying here is that in verse 13 is we have to learn a whole new way of living. And it will not feel intuitive to us. Think of it like this. For those of you who are right-handed, what if, beginning right now, you could never use your right hand again to write or throw uh, or um, hammer and you could only use your left hand. That would be really disorienting. It would slow you down. It would be really frustrating. Or a little bit more, I think, uh, trenchant. You know, earlier in chapter 7, Paul talked about how we were once married to a lifeless spouse. And the idea of marriage, marriage to Jesus, is, is woven throughout this section in, in, in Romans. Think about what it would look like if, if you were married to someone and they suddenly died. And you had to figure out, how am I supposed to do life now? How am I supposed to live without that person anymore? And even play it out a little bit further. What if you got married to a new spouse who is totally different than your previous spouse? Different preferences, different tastes, different habits, different schedule. It would be having to learn a whole new way of living. And so when Paul here is telling us that there is a a kind of life that leads to death and a kind of death that leads to life, to live by the Spirit, this new task that's before you, if it feels really weird, if it feels very counterintuitive, if it feels unfamiliar and uh, uncomfortable, that probably means good things are happening. And I would tell you, don't run from that. Step into that and continue to walk into that uncomfortable, counterintuitive life Because it's the work of the Spirit reteaching you what it means to truly live. So then what does this task look like, though? What must you do? Notice what he says. Verse 13, he says, put to death. This is not a passive uh, command. This is an active participation on your part. Let, Let Paul here again remind us that to be a Christian is not simply letting go and let God. To be a Christian will engage every aspect of your being, heart, soul, mind, and strength. It is an active 
waging war, of putting to death those things in your life that would wreak havoc in your life and in other people's lives. However, at the very same time, what I want you to notice is that we would call that an imperative. That's a command. And we could even call this a gospel command to do something. But you need to hear again, those commands never come to you in a vacuum. Those commands always are built on what we can call gospel indicatives. Gospel truths or facts that Jesus has accomplished. So for example, this command to put to death the deeds of the body are built on you've died to sin. You've died to the law. You have died to that which held you captive. That's your new situation. And here Paul has given you a task that's now possible because of that new situation. Now what this means for you is that we are not set free from the need to put sin to death. What Paul is teaching us here is that it's now necessary and possible to do so. You've got to hear that and understand that. Paul is not saying, put to death sin so that God will save you. What he's saying is, God has rescued you and set you free in Jesus. Now you are set free to struggle and to fight and to win. I want you to hear that, and we'll keep on saying that. But that is fundamental to understanding what, it, what life in the Spirit really is. And not only that, Paul here in this task isn't saying just, all right, it's all up to you to put this sin to death. Your situation has changed, make the most of it. Because what does he say? If by the Spirit. This task of putting sin to death, you don't do it alone. Living the Christian life isn't, all right, God saved me, now it's up to me to make it all work. God doesn't work that way. He saves you completely. And what that means here is, he gives you the gift of his Holy Spirit. And he says, if by the Spirit you put to death these, the sin in your life, you will live and here the idea of live isn't just you'll make it to another day, but that you would live in the most fullest comprehensive sense. That this is how God has designed us to flourish in this life and to enter into life eternal with Jesus forever. If by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. Now, why is it so important that we live by the Spirit? Perhaps you're already feeling this some. I, I do when I read this passage, that th this feels very overwhelming. Um, I'm not exactly sure what this always looks like. What does that mean to do this by the Spirit? Um, 
And I want to look at that a little bit. And I want us to look at the spirit of adoption, our third point. And as we move towards that, I want us to think in terms of or to notice how does Paul describe the Holy Spirit up to this point in Romans chapter 8. And again, remember, this is a huge contrast with chapter 7, okay? In Romans 8 chapter 2, Paul describes the Spirit as the Spirit of life. In chapter 8 verse 9, the Spirit of God. And in the same verse, the Spirit of Christ. You should be noticing this is Trinitarian language. This is the Holy Trinity, God, Father, Father, Son, and Spirit, all actively engaged in the work of changing you from the inside out. Verse, chapter 8, verse 10, again, he's described as the Spirit of life. And again in verse 14, the Spirit of God. But it's not until chapter 8, verse 15 is the first time Paul describes the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, as the Spirit of adoption. Why is it so important for us to understand what it means to live by the Spirit? Because you, the Spirit of adoption means the life of faith happens in the context of family. And it's a family that you now belong to, not because you were born into it, but because your now new father has chosen you and adopted you and made you part of his family. Irrespective of your background, irrespective of the life that you have led, good or bad, this whole idea here of adoption is God's way of saying, you belong to me. I have made you mine. And my Holy Spirit is the spirit of adoption. The seal of that good news. Now, what I want you to see here in verse 14, notice he says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That word led means governed by, guided by, directed by. And that experience proves your adoption. Now, what would that look like? How do you know if you're being led by the Spirit? And I want to recover this phrase, led by the Spirit, from some sort of like um, fortune-telling thing or uh, some sort of writing on the wall. I want you to think about this in terms of to be led by the Spirit is to experience a shift. A shift from the things that you used to want to do and love to now finding yourself drawn to love and care about things that before you never would have. Now, that doesn't mean you do that perfectly. But what it does mean is that there is a change that's happening. Another way to think about what does it mean to be led by the Spirit? How do you, how do, when you read the Scriptures, how does it land with you? Are you do you find yourself resonating with what's being said there? 
Do you find yourself wanting what's being said there to be true of you? Do you find it convicting? All of those are examples of what does it mean to be led by the Spirit. The Spirit of adoption. He leads and governs, and as he does so, he proves who you really are. Why do you need to hear that? What that means is your adoption, remembering who you are, isn't first and foremost about you and your successes and failures at putting to death the flesh. You are being led by the Spirit if you are a Christian. It is by the Spirit that you now live the life you live. And that Spirit's, his, one of his main jobs is to make you personally holy. Another way to think about this is you have now a whole new family resemblance. Think about your own family. Think of the traditions in your family. The, the things that you do. The ways that you walk. We, I had actually just, just occurred to me this morning... Um, my oldest and I, we were sitting in the, uh, standing in the kitchen and uh, Meg made us these really cool, really good pumpkin chocolate chip scones. I was eating one, he was eating one. And we're both standing up on either side of the counter. I took a bite, he took a bite. We both, at the exact same time, he walked that way, I walked this way, the exact same distance, for the exact same amount of time, turned around, came back, right back to our plates, and took another bite. Like mirror images. Was, I'm glad you're laughing. Because <laughs> Meg said that was really creepy. And, but you see, that's, if I could, that is a picture of holiness. Because holiness in the Bible is not a bad thing. Holiness is becoming like Jesus. And to become like Jesus is to resemble him. To the point where you become more and more like him so that you begin to do what he does. Mirror images of him. Conform to his image, which is what Paul says later in chapter 8. Now, what I want you to think about is, is here's the spirit of adoption, and I, I want to just touch on three things the spirit does. First of all, notice what he does in verse 15. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. He replaces fear with freedom. The spirit replaces fear with freedom in our relationship with God. What does that mean? Living the life of faith by the Spirit is not a fearful life anymore. To cry, Abba, Father, is a profoundly intimate cry of desperate need. What this means is the Holy Spirit brings you into a relationship with God where you don't have to be afraid to admit your weaknesses and failings your struggle against remaining sin. Even saying to him, it feels like I still live under the power of sin. I don't know if I buy this. There is a father who loves you. 
and a father who will never leave you or forsake you. He replaces fear with freedom, but he also assures you of, of our true identity. Verse 16, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. The spirit of God bears witness to you who you really are. Think of it like this. I hear this a lot in marriages. Um, yeah, she doesn't really get my love language. Uh, or, you know, he doesn't really understand my love language. Okay, I get that. But what, you wanna, what I want you to hear here is God knows your love language. And he bears witness to you, who you really are. And that love language is nothing less than the cross of Jesus Christ. How do you know who you really are? You know who you really are by looking to Jesus. And then thirdly here, he points to where we're headed, to our inheritance. Look here in verse 17. If children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Three times in that verse, he says, with Christ. Let me put it to you like this. If you belong to Jesus, where he is headed is where you were headed. You have an elder brother who has gone before you. And what it means to be a Christian is that you are joined to him. You are united to him. The glory that he now enjoys is the same glory that you will enjoy. And that is about him It's not about you. You now belong to this new family in which you are secure. And in in that family environment, you are now supposed to work out, put to death by the Spirit, and you will live. And I want you to think as we, we wrap this up, there are two really important themes in this chapter. One of them is a big word called sanctification. And think of that as God working your life to, to enable you to become who you've already been declared to be. Enabling you to become who you've already been declared to be in Jesus. But also there's this theme of assurance and security of adoption. Why are they woven together? Well, because this task is not linear. It's not consistent. It's full of fits and starts, ups and downs, progress, and then falling back. It's unpredictable time to time. And you need to know that you are safe in your new family. You will never be disowned. And even more than that, I want you to see here something in verse 13. When Paul says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Do you know who's done that already? Jesus did that. What did Jesus do in his life and his death and his resurrection? Jesus received the Holy Spirit at his baptism. His entire life, all the way through to his death on the cross, is him putting to death the deeds of the flesh, saying no to a way of life that leads to death. Doing for you what you can't do. 
But then do you also know on the cross, Jesus, he bore the consequences for living according to the flesh because he died. And so what I want you to hear from this passage, I do want you here to hear a call to put to death sin in your life. But at the same time, I want you to hear Jesus Christ has done what you are called to do here. And because of that, he wants you to succeed at this, which is why he has given you his Holy Spirit, which is why he has connected himself to you, because he wants you to be where he is on that great day when he comes back to make all things new. Let's pray. We ask that you would work by your spirit in our hearts and our lives as we take in this passage. It's a, it's a really important one, and um, it's profound and deep and rich. And we ask that you would help us to experience and to know that perhaps there is a much greater overlap between heaven and earth than, than we tend to, to think every day. And that overlap comes to us in the power of your spirit. And we do pray that you would lead us, that you would guide us as your sons and your daughters, and that by your grace you would help us to put to death sin in order that we might truly live and know what that is like, that we might be truly satisfied in the depths of our being with you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.